Party time's over. Time to get serious. Why are the rich less ethical? They see greed as good. Wealth is correlated with greed, dishonesty, and cheating. Greed is the ultimate addiction. These are all recent uh, headlines the last couple of weeks. Does being wealthy make you greedy? Rich people are greedy. These are all separate headlines. Remember that. Wealth reduces compassion. And here's how. 25 bathrooms? Former labor secretary says Jeff Bezos, his mansion, helps make the case for soaking the rich. A current senator attacks Bill Gates' wealth, and yet Gates employs over 100,000 people. Wow. Remember, the media is on a mission, and I'm here to attack them, to help you calm down a little bit. All you got to do is Google wealth and greed, and all these headlines pop up all over the internet. So, you know, we're in the middle of a a series for or against how to think with integrity. And uh, today we're looking at wealth. We are not going to look at the rich. Uh, We'll look at that later on next year when we talk about poverty. We're going to talk about the rich. I mean, the wealth today, uh, the scriptures say a lot about the rich. We'll we'll briefly mention it today, but we want to really bring wealth into the discussion and begin to distinguish between wealth and greed. So let me start with a basic idea. Wealth is not a bad thing. Greed is. Now, we have to talk about both of those and what we mean by that. Now, remember that we are working to create a flourishing community right here. The stronger and healthier our community is, and the more we reflect the Lord together, the better uh, our relationships with the uh, community goes. We become a a picture, if you will, become a testimony, a statement uh, for the county of what it means to love people and how to have these discussions and have them well. And so if you can help people separate out things like wealth and greed, the media wants to confuse them. That's real big in our culture right now. Wealth and greed are tied together, and I'm going to argue biblically that they are not. They're two very different things. So let's start with the key idea. In fact, before I give you the key idea, let me give you a real simple idea. All of you are wealthy. Let's start with that premise. In the eyes of the world, every one of you is wealthier in the top 1%. Okay? Every one of you. doesn't matter how poor you are here. Every one of you has some degree of wealth, and there are people all over the world that would change lives with you that fast. So let's start with that. So everything we're going to talk about is talking about you. Talking about you. Okay? So here's a central idea. A core part of human flourishing, we've been talking about human flourishing, what constitutes a flourishing community? If we are flourishing, then our people are attracted and interested in us. If we are not flourishing, we've already lost it. Already. If we're backbiting, divided, fractured like our country, we're no different than the world. If our divorce rate is the same as the world, we're no different than the world. What makes us flourishing? What makes us flourishing? A core part of human flourishing is the ability to create and enjoy some level of abundance. That's a core idea. Some level of wealth. 
That's a core part of flourishing. This includes things that are natural and produce things that surround us. One of my favorite uh, authors, Miroslav Volf, he's a philosopher out of Yale University. He says, a key component of human flourishing is the enjoyment of created abundance. Okay? So right off the bat, we're going to extend wealth beyond money. A key component of human flourishing is the enjoyment of created abundance, the astonishing variety of good things, natural and produced, that surround us and to which we ourselves belong. That's a core part of flourishing, is to bring those together. This is what was behind the idea we talked about two weeks ago, Genesis 127, where he says, let us make humans in our image. And then he told them to subdue the earth. And I said, that's a very violent word. Take control of it. And, um, but when you attach that verb to the concept of land in the Bible, it has a slightly different idea. It means it brings it under control and begins to cultivate something and produce something better. And I use the example that the earth by itself can't generate enough food for us to survive. It requires us for it to fulfill its function. When we begin to cultivate and take care of the earth, it starts to produce more food than it can by itself. And so there's that example where we as humans are in partnership with the rest of creation to produce what cannot be produced unless we work together. It's a partnership. That's what it means to till the earth, subdue it. It doesn't mean to exploit it or abuse it. It means to help creation perform better than it could perform on its own. And by the same token, creation helps us to do more than we could do on our own because we would die if we didn't have food. And so this is what's behind that idea of flourishing is that we work together to generate really good things. This is the true meaning of wealth. Now, the scriptures celebrate the prosperity of the people of Israel, for example, in Deuteronomy. Let's put Deuteronomy up there. So if you faithfully, now remember, they're on this side of the river. They're finished the 40 years of wandering. They're getting ready to enter into the promised land. Just that language alone captures the idea of abundance. A land flowing with milk and honey. You're beginning to see how we were created. If you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today... To love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, when you enter the promised land, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and olive oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will be eat, you will eat and you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. There's a large number of passages that speak this way. I just handpicked a few to illustrate how important wealth is. Wealth is important. This is part of the idea of shalom. We translate that peace. Peace is not the absence of conflict. That's a little tiny part of it. This word shalom is a very beautiful word that has to encompass all of us, all of the human. We are, to, we are to be blessed. We're created to be blessed. We're created to be loved. We're created to experience an abundance. We're created to experience prosperity. That's what we were made for. We weren't made to be greedy. We weren't made for that. And so there's a difference. All through the prophets, they make the case. There's a lot of themes that run through the prophets. Every prophet talks about several things. But one of them is that created goods are a core value of their prophecy. 
For example, in Micah 4.4, Messianic vision. He's right in the middle of the Messianic vision. He says, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. I mentioned on the Sunday when we talked about ecology that at the foundation of effective environmental policies, ownership of private property. When's the last time you took your rental car and changed the oil before you turned it in? Right? When's the last time you rented a hotel room and cleaned it up before you left? No, we don't do that. And so Israel was the first nation, I believe, in, in history that, that assigned private property because God gave us this creation as a gift and knew that if we owned it, we would take care of it. So they're the first nation to do that. So everybody, every family had their plot of land. And if you messed up and somehow had to sell your land at the end of 50 years, you got it back. Your family got it back. So God made sure. So that was the beginning of that. Isaiah, in his vision of the new heaven and new earth, in Isaiah 65, here's what he says. Everyone will build houses and dwell in them. Everyone. Everyone will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and they will eat their fruit. See that picture? Everyone is satisfied. Everyone is happy. So an abundance, blessing, wealth is part of God's created order. The coming kingdom brings with it a blessing in, over the entire planet. We've already looked at that in prior sermons. Even Jesus in his lifetime, he never turned down a good party. Never. If there's wine or food, fellowship, he was there. He's ready to go. It didn't matter if it was a, a Pharisee, if it was a, a sinner. It didn't matter who it was. He showed up. I love the wedding of Cana. Um, because the master comes to him at the end and says, Okay, I'm confused. Most people serve the good wine until everybody's drunk, inebriated. And then they bring out the cheap wine. You've done the opposite. You gave everybody the cheap wine. He didn't know where the wine had come from. Jesus made the best wine in the world. You gave everybody the cheap wine first and now that they're inebriated, you're bringing out the good wine. And it says that was the first miracle where he revealed his glory. I love the wedding of Cana. I love Jesus. He's my hero. There's a party. I'm there. That should be our motto. One of my friends has a church and their website's called thepartychurch.com. Now we're talking. It's interesting, uh, we went and saw the Grins play, and it was really good, by the way. I don't know if you went, and you should go hear them if you don't have a chance. And uh, was that you taking pictures? Oh, yeah. She comes up to me, and she says, I didn't meet her until that night. She goes, I go to your church, I just didn't expect to see a pastor at a bar. I loved it. That's life. That's where Jesus went. His parables, they use all kinds of banquet imagery, Plentiful harvest imagery to illustrate the kingdom. He had all kinds of imagery about investing and multiplying things. That's what we're created to do. And quite honestly, I'll just put a little bit of my politics out on the table here. Don't do it often. That's why I don't hold to communism and socialism. The moment we equalize everything, we don't need each other. Maybe God designed something very different. Maybe he designed something very different so that we need each other. Enjoyment of wealth of creation is part of God's vision for human flourishing. So what's the problem? Greed. Greed. Remember this. Wealth is a statement of God's blessing. Greed is a statement of the heart. Don't confuse the two. Don't confuse it. Keep it simple. Wealth is a statement of God's blessing. 
Greed is a statement of the heart, and that's the problem. Are all wealthy people greedy? Are they? Hmm. God told Abraham in Genesis 12 that he was going to bless all the nations through him. This word blessing is a very large word. I'm going to read to you something out of a book called The Mission of God's People by Chris Wright, one of my favorite missiologists. The elders read this a few years ago, talking about this idea of blessing. Blessing, then, at the very heart of the Bible is constituted by fruitfulness. Is constituted by fruitfulness, abundance, fullness on the one hand, and enjoying rest within creation on the other, a relationship with God. So abundance, fulfillment, and rest in God's presence. Those two go together. That is captures this large idea of blessing. Blessing is off to a good start. We find the same themes in God's words of blessing to Noah in Genesis 9. So when we come to chapter 12, where he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. When we come to Genesis 12, the word of blessing must, from the context so far, include at least the concept of fruitfulness, multiplication, spreading, filling in abundance. It is a richly life-affirming and life-giving word. That's what blessing is. This is what God wants for the nations of humanity. I'm going to bless all the nations through you. That's what he's talking about, this very rich, life-giving word. However, there's nothing mechanical about being blessed in this way. Blessing is set within relationships that are both vertical and horizontal. That is, blessing is dependent on a relationship with God. That's where the blessing comes from. And blessing is something to be shared in relationship with one another. There's a horizontal. Thus, the blessing of Abraham becomes self-replicating. Self-replicating. Those who are blessed are called to be a blessing beyond themselves. And this is one feature that makes it profoundly missional. You see, when we bless others, the natural result is gratitude and thanksgiving. That's a natural result. If I have the ability to help you and I choose not to, there's going to be just a little bit of tension in the relationship. If on the other hand, I see that you're in need and I come alongside, you naturally give thanks. That's a natural response. This is what God planned all along. It was his intent from the beginning. He made Solomon the wealthiest person in the world. God made Solomon the wealthiest person in the world. Wealth is a statement of God's blessing. Greed is a statement of the heart. Why did he do that? Solomon was supposed to lead his people well, and he was supposed to bless his people. Now, we know the story of Solomon, don't we? He got led astray to foreign gods, and pretty soon he became corrupt. If Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, I happen to believe it is, I have no compelling reason that it wasn't, then it's a fascinating story, because he says toward the end of his life, I acquired everything that my eyes coveted. And nothing made me happy. This is the whole duty of humanity. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's what brings happiness. If you've never practiced generosity, try it. You will be amazed. So do we have examples of generous, wealthy people today? 
There's a website I would encourage you to have fun with, givingpledge.org. It's the wealthiest families in the world that have put public pledges of giving their wealth away. Okay? Here are some examples, I would argue, of generosity. The first one is Warren Buffett. It's worth $87 billion. I don't even know what that means. I'd like to find out. $87 billion. Here's his public pledge. Signed letter. In 2006, I made a commitment to gradually give away all of my Berkshire Hathaway stock to uh, philanthropic foundations. I couldn't be happier with this decision. Now, Bill and Melinda Gates and I are asking hundreds of rich Americans to pledge at least 50% of their wealth to charity. So I think it's fitting that I reiterate my intentions and explain the thinking that lies behind them. Now, this letter is a summary of everything. His bigger letters online. I just captured parts of it. First, my pledge. More than, more than 99%, that is worth $87 billion, more than 99% of my wealth will go to uh, philanthropy during my lifetime or at death. It's giving it all away. Measured by dollars, this commitment is large. In a comparative sense, though, many individuals give more every day. That's the story of the widow's mites. Millions of people who regularly contribute to churches, schools, and other organizations thereby relinquish the use of funds that would otherwise benefit their own families. The dollars these people drop into a collection plate or give to United Way or whatever mean for, foregone movies, dinners out, or other personal pleasures. In contrast, my family and I will give up nothing we need or want by fulfilling this 99% pledge. Moreover, this pledge does not leave me contributing the greatest and most precious asset, time. Many people, including, I'm proud to say, my three children, give extensively of their own time and talents to help others. Gifts of this kind often prove far more valuable than money. A struggling child, befriended, befriended and nurtured by a caring mentor, receives a gift whose value far exceeds what can be bestowed by a check. My sister Doris extends significant person-to-person -person daily help. I've done little of this. What I can do, however, is take a pile of Berkshire Hathaway stock certificates and commit them to the benefit of others. That's where his $87 million of wealth is, is in stock, Berkshire Hathaway stock. I can commit them to the benefit of others who, through the luck of the draw, have received the short straws in life. My wealth has come from a combination of living in America, some lucky genes, and compound interest. Both my children and I won what I call the ovarian lottery. For starters... The odds against my 1930 birth taking place in the U.S. were at least 30 to 1. By being male and white also removed huge, huge obstacles that a majority of Americans then faced. The reaction of my family and me to our extraordinarily good fortune is not guilt, but gratitude. Did you hear it? Never, ever feel guilty about being wealthy. Ever. Feel guilty about being greedy. 
Some of you need to give more to this church. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just teasing you. The reaction of my family and me to our extraordinary good fortune is not guilt, but rather gratitude. Here's a second one. Bill and Melissa Gates. They're worth $107 billion. Again, I have no idea what that means. $107 billion. Parents all over the world do their best to give their children great opportunities. They work to give their children every chance to pursue their own dreams. However, for too many parents, their dreams of giving their family better lives are dashed. In the United States, their children don't get the education they need to succeed in life. In the developing world, their children succumb to diseases that have long since been eradicated in rich countries. We have committed the vast majority of our assets assets to bill to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to help stop preventable deaths, to tear down other barriers of health and education that prevent people from making the very most of their lives. Our animating principle is that all lives have equal value. Do you hear that? That's one of the root causes that led them to move in this direction. Our animating principle is that all lives have equal value. In other words, it means that we believe every child preserves the chance to grow up, to dream, and to do big things. If you read the rest of the letter, they describe the things that caught their heart when it came to children and led them to change their mind about wealth. We've been blessed with good fortune far beyond our wildest expectations, and we are profoundly grateful. There it is. Letter after letter of wealthy people. We are profoundly grateful. But just as these gifts are great, we feel a great responsibility to use them well. That is why we are so pleased to join in making an explicit commitment to the Giving Pledge. Givingpledge.org. Those are examples. When I was vice president at Denver Seminary, I met with one of the donors who became a friend. Very, very wealthy man. Very, extremely wealthy. Uh, And I asked him, why do you give to the seminary and all these organizations? His eyes filled with tears. And he said, I never finished high school. Um, I can't do what you do. I don't know how to teach others and equip them. He said, God made me to make money. Every business I touch becomes gold. Every business. I don't know how not to make money. Now, there's a gift that could be interesting to have. (laughs) Right? But seriously, his eyes filled with tears. He said, I cannot do what you do. And so my commitment is to use all these resources to bless Christian organizations that do what I can't do. Is that generosity or greed? Be very careful on your discussion with the wealthy. Be very careful. How many of you went on the church retreat? Excellent. Do you realize that there's no way we could afford to put a retreat on for the price that we offered it? But I sat down with a person over coffee who said, I'd like to underwrite the retreat so that you can keep the costs affordable for young families. So we sat down to figure out what we thought would be affordable, and I told them, here's how much it's going to cost. And he wrote a check with a big grin and said, thank you. I can't wait to bless these families. 
That's cause for celebration, isn't it? We want wealthy people. We don't want greedy people. And there's a difference. Okay. So what makes it turn into greed? A couple thoughts. It turns into greed when we think it belongs to us. This is mine. Got to protect it. That turns the heart in the wrong direction. Another thing that turns it into greed is when we show, when we use it to show our superiority. Look at several of the athletes and uh, actors and actresses. We have plenty of examples of this, don't we? Show us their superiority. It turns into greed when we place when we place our hope in wealth rather than God. That turns it into greed. Turns it into greed when we improperly acquire it. We exploit others. We cheat on our taxes. We're not people of integrity. That makes it greed. That means wealth is more important. You see, Psalm 24 1 gives us a very good principle that you should all remember. Let's put Psalm 24 up there. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it. Everything you own belongs to the Lord, including you. Everything. That's the starting point. That's why it should, it should create gratitude in your hearts. But then Jesus goes a little bit further in Matthew 6. You know the famous verse. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things. What things? He just had finished talking about clothing, food, all the things that you need to be satisfied, to enjoy life, to enjoy an abundance. All these things will be given to you as well. You see, if you search for wealth, you end up greedy. If you search for the kingdom, you end up with wealth. You got to get the right priorities in place. Wealth, to do what you want with? No. Not at all. This is where we differ from the prosperity gospel, folks. No, it's to give away and to bless others. So what's all this mean? Let me give you some closing thoughts. We're all wealthy at some level, all of us. But are you greedy? I don't know the answer to that. I tell you, every time we take the offering, thanks for being generous. You're a very generous church. Only you know if you're greedy. You have to look in the mirror and figure that out. So go look in the mirror and figure it out. You don't want to be greedy. We have a responsibility to use our wealth to bless others. That's why God blesses us, including the poor. By the way, I think that's true at a national level as well, throughout the history of the Bible. He blessed our country so that we could bless others. Mark talked about it in the immigration sermon. that We take in 4.5 million immigrants every year. I praise God for that. Because if we're a blessed nation, we want to bring in people from other countries that are not blessed to come. We are to celebrate those who are wealthy and generous, not those who are greedy. We're to celebrate the wealthy. You don't know who underwrote the retreat, but you should still celebrate them and say, God, whoever it was, thank you. Give them more. Because you know what? Those who are generous, they give it away. They get more, they give it away. So we should celebrate the wealthy who are generous. Then we have this dilemma. How much do we give? How much do we keep? It's always going to be a dilemma. I'm not going to answer it for you because you have to live within the tension, but there are two verses that give us some insight. One is 1 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, in other words, greed, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, 
who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So on one side of the equation, enjoy what God has given you. Enjoy it. That's what Buffett was talking about. They keep 1%, and that's more than enough for their family, and they enjoy it. They enjoy it. But on the other side, 2 Corinthians 9, we're to practice generosity in all that we have. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. You give a little, you get a little back. You give a lot, you get a lot back. To keep? No, to keep giving to others. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There are the two sides. Don't feel guilty about being wealthy. Enjoy it. At whatever level God puts you, feel guilty about being greedy, so give generously. Those are the two sides. That's what balances that tension. Okay? That's what balances. We're in a world that's trying to make us feel guilty for being both American and wealthy. And I'm fighting that. I don't agree with it. It's not biblical. We should be generous people. We should be generous Christians who happen to live in a country that is great and we can help others who don't have it like as good as we do. We should be we should pressure to buy, buy, buy. Faithfulness to God is far more important than ownership of things. If you've never given, you've missed out on one of the greatest opportunities in the universe. Paul said, and he's quoting Jesus, kind of wish we had that in the Gospels because the Gospels didn't record it. Somehow he heard Jesus taught, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You receive far more blessing by giving. So when we have conversations with our neighbors and our friends, how do we turn those conversations into healthy conversations? That bless the right people. We should celebrate generous, wealthy people. I'm very grateful for uh, a Bill and Melissa Gates who's worth $107 billion and employ 100,000 people. And they're giving it all away. I appreciate very much a Warren Buffett who's worth $87 billion is contributing 99% to help the world because they both have the same response. We feel grateful. We feel grateful. Where are you? I can't answer that question. Only you can. Where are you in that? Are you one of those grateful, generous people? Or are you one of the greedy people? Father, thank you for your incredible, incredible goodness to us. An incredible generosity, your deep love. Love that just goes on and on and blesses us richly. Thank you for that. Thank you for placing us, as Warren Buffett said, um, in a country where we can enjoy fine things. Help us not to be greedy, but to love and bless others and share those with them. Help us to be a church that is like that as well. In your son's name we pray. Amen. God ask the ushers to come take the offering. You know my heart. I say it tell you every Sunday. Thanks for being generous.